Welcome to Boundless Pursuit, a weekly podcast providing motivation, entertainment, and education to anglers and outdoorsmen. I hope that the stories you'll find here will encourage you to chase your passion more fervently, to open your mind to new opportunities and perspectives. Your engagement and feedback is critical to the growth of this show, and I would love to hear your suggestions on topics or potential guests. You can reach me at boundlesspursuitfishing at gmail.com or at my website, www.boundless-pursuit.com. That's where you'll find all related articles, media, and merchandise. Please remember, the show will gain traction from your support. Be sure to like, comment, and share this podcast to your friends and connections. I'm your host, David Graham. Now let's get on to today's episode. All right. Very, very special guest today. Uh, today's guest is somebody that I met about 17 years ago at the Citadel, which is the military college that I went to. His name is Sanford Anthony. And up until very recently, even though we met almost two decades ago, I had really never spoken his first name because at the time that we met, Sanford was a senior at the Citadel and I was just a lowly knob, which is fancy word for freshman. And this was at a place where just making eye contact could earn you some horrible punishments. So we never really got to know each other like that. And it wasn't until years after graduating that I found out that Sanford, who's a Georgia native, a guy that's from the southeastern United States, was living in Alaska, fly fishing along grizzly bears for steelhead and salmon. I had seen that he had spent time with the fly fishing film tour road crew traveling across the country, just chasing his passion for the next bite. And I got to say, I did so with envious eyes because I wear the same ring as this guy. We traveled through the same kind of life journey. And yet here he is chasing his passions. So I just had to use this opportunity to find out how his journey led him through those gates across that checkered quadrant of our battalion and into the Alaskan frontier as a fly fishing guide. So we just enjoyed a really cool conversation catching up after nearly two decades to see where our respective lives had led after leaving that place. And the way that Sanford describes his journey uh, and the calculated risks that he took in leaving what might have been a comfortable or safe job is something that I think a lot of people can draw inspiration from and relate to. So I think you're really going to enjoy this one. This is Sanford Anthony. All right. You know what that means? That means we're we're rolling. So Sanford, I, I can actually safely say your first name now. What are we, like 17 years removed from, from uh, my last opportunity to even talk to you? So for people listening... I have a fellow Citadel graduate on here with me. Hope to make that kind of a, a common a common theme uh, on this show for as many Citadel guys that I can find that actually enjoy the outdoors. But uh, Sanford, you and I were actually in the same company. But, you know, you being a senior, me being a freshman, we just kind of like, you know, weren't really allowed to speak. Uh, could be a bad situation, but it's good to finally get to know the angler and not just the Citadel guy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me on. It was, uh, well, I guess uh, like you and I talked earlier, I wish I had known what I know now about uh, <laughs> who you were uh, when you were a freshman. It probably would have made uh, 
for a little more interesting of a year, at least uh, sneaking off to try to go fishing in the marsh yeah. behind the Yeah, I think the only time you had, the only reason you ever had to come into my room at that place, and now this is a military school that we're talking about. People can be like, what the hell are these guys talking about? Normal old college dorm rooms don't act like that. But we went to a military college where there's like, you know, it's sort of against the rules for a freshman to talk to almost anybody. And now at, at that school, they're called knobs because you get your little head shaved and it's bald and you look like a little doorknob running around. But especially you're not going to talk to a senior. But I remember the only time you'd ever come into our room was to like bum some dip off of my roommate or to like rummage around in our drawers and leave them open in search of like snacks and candy. So, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, it's a it's a longstanding tradition in the Citadel of uh, seniors feeding themselves uh, right. out of freshmen's rooms. <laughs> yeah. Thanks uh, to all the not mom and dads out there for keeping the seniors bellies full. You know, I had a really awesome uh, job my junior year or maybe it was. Yeah. My memory's gotten so foggy in that place. Maybe it's a good thing. It's like I'm eliminating bad memories. But uh, no, I no, I was the supply sergeant my junior year. And it's funny because I had convinced all the knobs that as supply sergeant, it is my responsibility to inventory all of your items when you matriculate. Like, oh, that's contraband. And that, oh, that's not allowed. So I'm going to have to inventory those items and keep them safe in my room. So I Absolutely. seized. I mean, I seized three years worth of snacks. And they never saw those snacks ever again. I mean, I was well, like, I mean, you were only doing your job. Let's be honest. All right. Well, I, I may or may not have been operating like a black market snack like center out of my my room. I was like, y'all can buy these back at the end of the year, <laughs> wheeling and dealing people's uh, moon pies and tootsie rolls. But but oh. anyway, I I feel like I vaguely remember. You know, I I dared not let my eyes deviate off of like a straight line from that school. But I feel like I remember seeing maybe it was you. Were you involved in like the Rod and Gun Club or like the? Yeah. Okay. Because yeah, I, I could have swore I remember seeing you out on the quad. Which, mind you, people who are listening, you go out on the quad to practice like rifle uh, efficiency or two to like physical fitness assessments and to like move around. It basically looks like a giant checkerboard and right. cadets who are dressed in military attire only go onto the quad to, to do like, you know, military related movements and drills. And then I do remember seeing, and I know you as Anthony, I didn't even know what the hell your first name was walking across the quad, practicing your fly cast. I was like, what the hell is that guy doing? So then that's when I actually learned that there was a rod and gun club, which sadly I actually never got involved with. But I feel like I vaguely remember seeing you out there practicing your fly cast on the quad, which I thought was pretty awesome. Yeah, it was uh, I, I was like just, you know, like a lot of people in the beginning stages of the fly fishing thing and getting uh, frustrated with, you know, not being able to get past that like 30, 35 you know, foot mark with consistency. And yeah. <laughs> uh, it's funny you tell that. I remember a story of another classmate walking up and he's like, oh, you're trying to get into it. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the fly fishing thing, I think it's super cool. And he's like, well, let me see your rod. And he takes it and just fires out like what at the time I thought was like the most beautiful, perfect little loop. Everything went great. Shoots <laughs> all the line that I had stripped out and like hands me the rod. And he's like, I like it. Nice little stick. And I'm I've been trying so hard to do that and you just yeah. make it look so effortless. Yeah. And, uh, but, uh, it, honestly, that's where a lot of the, the roots of my whole fly fishing journey, uh, started there, uh, you know, and back home in Georgia during the, the winter breaks in the summer and just trying to figure it out. 
Yeah, that's good. It's 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 funny how that school works. I I feel like I developed a deeper appreciation and passion for fishing from the Citadel. Uh, you know, you learn a lot of very uh, uh, important life skills at that school, like how to shine brass and how to polish a shoe. You know, things that you'll carry off and to the rest of your life. You know what I mean? But <laughs> and never but do I, again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I do remember how shitty that that place was. And I mean, I did I, a lot of guys go to that school. And, you know, they're like legacy people like their dad went there and their grandpa went there or, you know, I had no idea what I was doing. I don't even know why I went there. <laughs> Everything was new to me. I think where I benefited was I had two older brothers that just kicked my ass my whole life and like treated me like dog shit the whole time. So it was like I had the right, I don't know, uh, sense of humor. I think if you just have it, I mean, I thought it was hilarious. Like some of the stuff the guys would like call me and say to me, I was like, oh my God, that is great. I got to write that one down. I got to use that one. So that's why I don't know. That's what made it easier for me. But, but anyway, like some of the stresses of being there, it was, is like I needed that like form of meditation, the rare instances we got to get out of school. And so part of me sort of like uh, hates that my four years at that place, I, I spent not enough time with the classmates. Never went into like Charleston to go get drunk with the guys like you know, a couple of times. Never just went out on like the town. It was like if I had time to get away from there, I went home. I went to like local waters. I like found my kayak, my canoe at the time, my little John. I just went fishing every single time I could. Maybe on days that we weren't supposed to be off campus, I somehow found myself off campus. But like I needed fishing more than like ever before when I was at that school just to like reset rewind calm down it was like therapy to me so it was like i don't know I, I feel like the four years there where you know you're kind of existing in this i don't know there's like a there's like this this layer of stress always looming over your head to make sure your academics are balanced with the stuff you have to do citadel wise and what am i going to do with my life when i get out of this place and so it's like i needed that reflective time out on the water so it's like my I don't know. My passion for fishing really grew at that place. And I imagine yours probably did something similar. I mean, did you share kind of a similar experience coming out of there or being, being there? Yes. And no, uh, seeing as how I was from about a six hour drive away, uh, you know, the Atlanta yeah. area, uh, I didn't have the option to go home. So I ended up, you know, doing actually a lot of hunting and fishing while I was there, but that was due to my roommate, Clint Kirkland, who uh, was from a small town about two hours away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we do a lot of coon hunting as wonderfully redneck as that is. <laughs> uh, and, you know, fishing and, you know, all kind of general stuff, but man, I uh, absolutely wore out Charleston. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I had, I had plenty of those weekends that, uh, that you're mentioning. Uh, you had a couple of uh, question for you though. And for most people, I'm sure they, they have no idea that the Citadel uh, is, this, is this beautiful campus that looks like some old castle from, you know, a era gone by. But it backs up to the Ashley River and coming right up to the back of campus is this beautiful marsh. And you can see the river out in the distance and it's gorgeous. And our rooms in Tango Company actually overlook the marsh. And so mm -hmm, I thought right. we always had the best view of anybody yeah, yeah. in school you know and uh i can't tell you how many times i would stare out at that one little kind of canal and then creek that would go through there and uh one day i thought i saw a little bit of disruption and uh, i ran back there with my fly rod and I, I swear on everything i 
told like two or three guys like, Hey, I'm running into the, into the marsh and I'm gonna go catch a fish. And, like, oh. yeah. <laughs> and uh, the tide was perfect. I, I remember it. it was a flood tide and everything and ran back there and right where that little junction was, I stalked up to it and dropped the fly in there and all of a sudden hooked up to a, you know, little, probably about a 20 inch, 18 inch redfish, you know? Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. But like, it was, Oh my God, this is so cool. And it's right there behind our school. Did you ever do that? Or I didn't. And I, I kicked myself because it's funny. You mentioned that. Uh, the guy that was my like mentee knob, I guess. Remember that when we were seniors? Yeah, you get mentor uh, mentee. You yeah. get like assigned whether you like it or not to one that is your mentee, and then you mentor them by making them like do your laundry and making them iron your clothes. Like that's good mentorship, you know what I mean? That's good. That's good uh, development of character. Uh, but anyway, there was this. Uh, there was this guy. He was actually into fishing as well. We fished a few times after I graduated. This guy named Wesley Allsbrook. And uh, he went there um, and he had sent me pictures like, I don't know, a year after I graduated or right after I graduated. And he was catching redfish from remember the remember the Citadel Boat Club, like the dock that they had out yeah. there. Yeah, he would just go yeah, like absolutely. between classes and fish off the dock. So he has photos. I'm so envious of him standing in front of the T in front of the company letter holding a redfish. My damn, I went four years there, <laughs> never got that awesome photo like. That's like a wall hanger there. Like that, that's a photo that you frame and keep forever. I was like, oh my Honestly, gosh, I, I, uh, I, I never did it. I pulled the old fly fisherman. in. I, I had it in my hands and I remember kind of like looking around and like looking back at school and then I just ducked it back in the water and let him swim off. And that's funny. Yeah, through I, the marsh. I don't know how I, I, I don't, I mean, I imagine that fish probably didn't survive that, uh, trek all the way over to the end of the battalion. But anyway, um, but yeah, uh, it would have been a better story had we grilled fillets in the battalion somehow. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nob, eat that. Make sure it's safe. But um, yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, no, well, I did. I mean, I fished locally around the beaches. I remember there was one time I took all the guys out. Uh, Nob year, we all went out to, I think it was Isle of Palms or Sullivan's Island, because it, you know they'd seen my pictures catching sharks and stuff from the beach and wanted to do it. I was like, oh well, you know we can go, but hell, we probably won't catch anything. Like you know out there and just at least chill out on the beach with a few lines in the water it was like a great day i don't remember i took like a half a dozen of the guys out there we all like it was like the best day of just like <laughs> surf fishing for black tips i mean it's like you know just your basic black tip sharks but for a lot of guys you know a 80 pound black tip is like the fish of a lifetime it's like an amazing experience and we went out there and just tore into black tips but other than that didn't do a lot around charleston but i lived in monk's corner so i was never more than a half hour from home so I right. guess I had the luxury of just going home, but I don't know. Kind of interfered on some of the relationship building with with the guys, but still came out of there with with great friends. But uh, but anyway, I don't want this to this. <laughs> I don't want this to become the Citadel talk because it's it alienates most of the people that might be listening. I, that's why I never tell Citadel stories. People look at me like, "The hell is this weirdo talking about?" Like anytime I start to go down that rabbit hole, but you just can't help it. And it's like. I mean, hell, here I am looking at a guy that we were in the same company. But anyway, but I am curious because somehow, some way, I found my way to your page years after the fact. And I saw, you know, the imagery of where you're at in, in Alaska, like uh, rafting past a bunch of grizzly bears, like in the water with these with these awesome fish. I'm like, I'm like, I remember him being kind of like a, a southern kind of guy. Like, how did he wind up there after the school? So I'm just I'm curious. And you have not told me this in detail yet anyway. So this is sort of like fresh on my ears. 
Like, I want to know, like, your journey to guiding in Alaska from being a Citadel graduate from Georgia. Go. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> just just lay yeah. it on me. Um. So, I guess, you know, like most guys, you graduate college, you're trying to figure out things. Uh, I bet, like, most guys in Charleston, uh, if you've never been to Charleston, South Carolina, for those of you listening, uh, you need to go. It's just truly an amazing town. Uh, the food's incredible, the nightlife, everything's just fun as can be about it. Uh, so, it, you know, 22 years old, the last thing you want to do is leave Charleston. And I was, you know, driving around with fishing rods in my truck all the time, you know, two or three spinning rods, bait casters, fly rods, like somebody, you know, would call like, yeah, I'll get on a boat, let's go. Yeah. And uh, ended up moving back to Atlanta, wasn't, you know, able to make things work and just kept trying to do the whole corporate grind and uh, Honestly, I'll never forget it. I was sitting there reading uh, a Field and Stream article about the day in the life of a fly fishing guide out west. And, yeah. you know, it's everything from getting the gear ready. And the whole time I'm reading it, I have this mental image. Of like, I, that, that needs to be me. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the next summer, I uh, or not even next summer, probably a couple weeks, a couple months later, I take a trip to Wyoming to the Wind River Range on a trip that I do with a bunch of guys called the men's hike. And we spent a week in the back country, uh, fishing lakes and creeks peaking, uh, you know, uh, there was about 11,000 foot mountain there, uh, across the Valley. So we peaked that, you know, just doing the whole explore out West. And for the next three months, it just chewed at me. Uh, and I figured out this thing called sweetwater guide school and, registered with them during their uh what would normally be kind of the spring break for college kids class and at the time i'm like 27 i've you know i've done three and a half years of enterprise rent a car i've been trying to figure out how to be a you know quote success within the you know constraints of what you know everybody lives and especially coming out of like a military school i think you have a perspective on life that uh is a little more rigid so yeah, to say yeah. if that makes sense you know and uh yeah i just got this wild hair like i gotta go out west i, I found out about the sweetwater guide school uh and signed up for the class in april uh told my boss that i was just going out west to go fishing uh <laughs> and it, it's you get the basics of how to row a boat the basics of like hey here you're gonna do shore lunches you're gonna spend a day driving a jet boat to see if that's something you're into uh, but it's a lot of training on drift boat rowing, how to put an angler in position, basics of teaching someone how to fly fish, you know, not so much learning how to fly fish. You're expected to know that when you show up, mm -hmm. but otherwise the basics of what it is to guide. And uh, ultimately I think what they're really doing is making sure you're not a complete idiot. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, this guy, Ron has the connection with literally hundreds of fly shops, lodges, uh, I say hundreds, maybe 150 all around the country. And at one point or another, he's been able to have a guide work with them. And it's uh, so it's a great resource because the hardest job in the fly fishing industry is that very first job. Um, and if you're a Georgia boy that has never rode a drift boat and never even seen like a salmon fly or any of the basic stone flies in person. And you're trying to call someone in Montana, like, yeah, hire me. The first reason is probably why, 
you know? Right, right. Uh, so going to that guide school, that gives you somebody that can say, well, this guy's not an idiot. So at least you answer mm-hmm. that, like, why should I hire you question? Uh, so I got my first job and uh, worked there for three years, uh, primarily on the Blackfoot River in Western Montana. For those of you who don't know, uh, it's right outside Missoula. It's the famous river. The river runs through it that that story takes place on. Um, and it is, uh, God, I, I don't have enough amazing words to say about, about that piece of water and uh, what I learned through three years there. Um, and you know, during that time, I'd run across clients that uh, had gone to Alaska and they talk about Alaska and all these giant fish to the point where as a guide somewhere that's not Alaska and you hear a client get yeah, in yeah. a boat and he's like, oh, I went fishing in Alaska. You want to be like, dude, this isn't that. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, right. Let's just start. <laughs> uh, and I kept hearing these stories and I'd, you know, see films or videos online of these guys like, flying around in planes to go catch fish. And it's like, man, this is like extreme fly fishing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think this is something I need to figure out and uh, <laughs> reach back into the, you know, Ron through Sweetwater bag of tricks and uh, was able to come up with some lodges in Alaska, applied to a handful of them and went up and uh, started my Alaska career that lasted uh, seven years. Yeah. So so now I want to like backtrack just a second. The guide school, how long you may have said this and I just I just missed it. How long how long are you in this guide school for? And like it's costing you money, I imagine. Like how are you making money? Like this just seems like I am and I'm curious too like at some point you had to have notified your your boss at, at the place you work like I quit. Like I'm curious like the mentality because that's like a real reckoning moment that you that you describe and that is a very difficult thing to do especially and i like i like that you mentioned and i went through kind of the same thing after you go through four years at a school like the citadel which is kind of like held on you know somewhat of a pedestal you almost feel indebted to your ring or indebted to your degree like well i went to that for four years i, I you know i gotta have a a real job you know, a real job, you know what I mean? Like, right. was there like a level of fear of like, you know, because there's a risk of failure and there's the obvious like step down and pay that you're that you're going to take and a hit that's going to that's going to hit you financially. There's a risk involved. There's I don't know. I don't know if you lost benefits. I mean, there you're risking a lot and taking that step. So I'm just curious with like, because I know that there's people out there listening or there might be people listening who are sort of at that same phase in their life where they they want more but i don't know they're like scared to they're scared to like take that gamble they're scared to do that so I'm just i want to know like more about that the decision making process of just or was it easy was it as easy as saying i want to go catch big fish see you later i quit <laughs> i mean like, like how, how did that work uh yeah um honestly it was one of those things. I think after I made the decision that I was going to do it, it was more of how do I do it? Uh, I, uh, you know, especially as a citadel man, you know, you're never supposed to lie, cheat, steal, tolerate those who do. I definitely lied to my boss and uh, yeah. told him I was purely just going like to go out west to go fishing. I think he kind of knew something was up. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm sure my work productivity had fallen off a little bit. And uh, yeah, right when I got back, I knew, uh, I knew there was no doubt about it. 
uh, I didn't say anything to my boss probably for a day or two. And I made, uh, I made a phone call to uh, the guy that would end up being my outfitter in Montana, Justin Caps, and had, he had already had my resume and said he just needed to talk to Ron to you know go back to the make sure I'm not an idiot thing. And he had gotten the go ahead from Ron. So uh, he called me. Uh, I remember talking to him while I was actually washing a car and yeah. uh, was I mean, I, I got a phone. I started jumping up and down like I'm going to Montana. I'm going to Montana. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, kind of composed myself and already rehearsed what to say and went and told my boss like, hey, uh, here's my two week notice. And uh, he's like, well, why don't you just pack all your stuff and leave? And like, you're good. Like, we're good. You're good. You just, you've been gone for a week. You've okay, only it was been like, back so it was like a, it was a, a positive, Yeah, it was. It was a positive thing. It wasn't like, pack your crap and get out of here. No, no, no. That's he scary, got scary. it. He yeah, knew. Yeah. Mentally, I was gone. Mentally, I was somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. was, you know. Um, and, and I think the the best thing that I could say right now is if to, if you are a person that's at that crossroad in your life and you're young and you're not you don't have strings or roots holding you somewhere um you know kids basically yeah yeah yeah. go go do it go do it while you're young go you know i was 27 or i guess 26 or something at the time Mm -hmm. uh i can't imagine something a change like that later in my life um i cashed in my 401k which looking back on it was you know Probably not a smart idea, but it yeah, threw yeah. a couple extra thousand in my pocket and uh, I loaded up a truck like a week and a half later and, and drove to Montana by myself. Now, were you born and raised in, in, uh, I don't know, Georgia? I mean, was it hard yeah. to like leave behind, you know, cause that's always interesting to me and you're not the first guy brought on here that's done that, but it always kind of fascinates me because I know a lot of people struggle with that. We're like their mom, their dad, all their friends from the time that they were in elementary school and everybody's just kind of like in that one area and you're just you're just like not cutting ties but you know what i mean like you're really getting out there on your loan like on your own like none of that really i mean it clearly didn't weigh too heavily in your mind but i mean i had already left a lot of my childhood friends um it was uh when i was between 10th and 11th grade my parents saw i was one of those kids that had gotten into trouble, but I was sure learning how. Right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they made the decision, and, and it, it's truly one of the best decisions ever. And this is something you probably don't know about me at all yet. Is uh, they put me in Riverside Military Academy, which is in North Georgia. Okay. And so that was my first taste of the, you know, boarding military school. And I operated great in that environment. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the structure was great for me. Uh, and so when, when that happened, I didn't go back to school with all these kids I'd grown up with. And then during that school year, my parents moved to where they live now, uh, coming Georgia about an hour north in the city. Okay. So other than a couple trips back to Atlanta, and then I realized that I had grown in a different way. Uh, and I had a new set of friends that I had more in common with and uh, ended up kind of being the path of you know, friendship that I started to take. And also, I think there's something to be said for that new group of people, uh, especially uh, this one particular guy, Jeremiah. He and I met as we called him new boys at Riverside, but the equivalent of a knob, you know, a freshman. And so we went through that process together 
And then my parents moved close to his house. So we already had the friendship at school that was forged through, you know, going through hell together with, you know, being a the hazing and everything goes with being a, a yeah, yeah. person in a, at a military school. <laughs> um, and he, he's actually the one that really introduced me to fishing. Um, and, uh, but yeah, back to the, the leaving that corporate structure. I, uh, I was definitely scared, but I think I knew I was, uh, young enough. And if everything else failed, I, uh, you know, figure out, get some money enough, come home move yeah. back in with mom and dad rebuild from there. Right. Like some amount, I, mean, I, I think some amount of fear like that is probably necessary to like make your decision more, I don't know, calculated. Because if there was no fear and it was just an impulse decision and you just cannonballed into it, you know, that could be looked at as reckless. Could have gone like, it, I mean, I imagine you had probably weighed out all the, like the risk and reward and like what the different threats were in that decision. So, so that's at least good. It's, I think a little bit of fear is a, is a healthy thing, but that's, Absolutely. you know, that's, that's interesting. But, um, but also yeah. at the same time, if, if you're not doing something that scares you every once in a while, then are you actually really living your life? Yeah. yeah. I like that. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, not saying necessarily just go skydiving for the sake of, you know, getting a little fear, but, uh, pushing your comfort zone, uh, especially like in your twenties when it, I think that's, that's the, that's the way you grow. Mm -hmm. and yeah, no. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I like I like the way you put that. I and I agree. It's like I don't know. That is like something that is like woven into the DNA of a lot of men, and I think it manifests itself in a lot of sometimes unhealthy ways. Whether that's going out and living like a dangerous or reckless lifestyle, but, but yeah, I think the fishing in the outdoors is always kind of giving that good outlet to that sort of calling. But I I, I totally I like the way you say that. I need to like write that down. That's a, that's a good one. I think I uh, probably probably stole that somewhat from jordan peterson or oh yeah <laughs> so anyway all right so then you end up in alaska now that's got to be an interesting experience there because like the you know you're raised in the southeastern united states and you're completely to the opposite side of the continent and you in you know when your boots hit the ground there like what is your impression of the landscape i've never been to alaska but i mean like like how do you how do you begin because it's like do you dive straight in to taking people out or is there like a learning process first? Or are you like kind of pretending to know more than you do when you're dealing with like clients or, you know, <laughs> you start kind of small and it's like, Hey, you're just the guy that carries the bags for the bigger guys. Like how, what is that experience like? Yes, no, maybe. And definitely. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think the number one rule uh, in guiding uh, that I'm sure most people that have never experienced the being a guide side of it would hate to hear is fake it till you make it. Um, now, you know, before anybody reads too much into that, the reality is, is uh, at the two different lodges I worked at, which I'll speak mostly from on this, my, my perspective as at the second lodge I worked at, which was a little different way that we went about things in the first lodge. Um, and you at first the first you know week two weeks you're at the lodge you're really just opening up getting everything ready for the season that's when you're learning how to drive a jet boat if you've never driven a tiller this is when it's going to happen for the first time you know in a lake and all that fun stuff um and you do get some you know some opportunities to go out and go fishing with the 
especially the veteran guides looking back at the rookie guides and kind of seeing like, okay, do they actually have a skill set? Cause you're up here. It's not like it's easy to just send you home. I mean, you're a couple plane, you're a plane flight from Anchorage and then everything else to get back to the lower 48. So, and there are times where you see a guy with, and you're like, Oh, he's, he's going to be some work to get him ready to be in front of clients. Um, for me, since I had already had three years of guiding experience, it was a pretty easy transition. It was more, I just need to learn some of the tactics, get comfortable running the boats. Yeah. Um, and, uh, at both operations were fly out operations. So every day you're dealing with a plane. So there is a large learning curve to, you know, learning how to properly and safely handle a plane in all different environments. Um, but absolutely there's a training process to it, uh, in fact, first couple of times you go out, you've got a senior guide with you uh, at the lodge I worked at for seven years. Your whole rookie season, almost, you have a senior guide guiding two people in a different boat and you're in another. So you're tag teaming together. You're working together. It's, it's usually a couple of years before you're making decisions in the field as the you know, veteran or senior guide. Right. And now the kind of people that you're taking out there, are these like seasoned folks or like complete and total novices or a little bit of both. I mean, that the caliber of anglers that you're dealing with is you just get like a mixed batch or is it, you know, you normally getting people out there that sort of know what they're getting themselves into. Oh, uh, it honestly, it's, it is a complete mixed bag. Um, and I'm sorry for everybody. If you can hear that scratch, that's my dog begging to go out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. But uh, it's, it's definitely a mixed bag. Uh, you get some anglers that are extremely skilled that, uh, you know, you could turn them loose on a piece of water with the right equipment and other than making sure they don't get eaten by a bear, they're good to go. Uh, and then you've got some people that end up either being a guest of somebody else's or uh, invited to go on this trip to Alaska for a week to go fishing. Like, yeah, that sounds great. They've never held a fly rod in their life. Oh boy. And you know, so, uh, and that happens way more than you might think. Um, and, and, and then everything in between. Mm-hmm. Now that's interesting. It's funny. You mentioned the the bear thing is like, I hate to be that guy, but like, you know, I am like a wildlife enthusiast, like at my core level, like I was that guy enamored by animals before I ever grabbed a fishing rod. Like I grabbed a fishing rod, just like secondary to the interest in the, in the wildlife. But the bear thing has always been one. That I always felt like if I was like in an open arena, like this isn't the zoo. This isn't like somewhere where there's a barrier. Like if you're just in an open arena out in the middle of the, I don't know, Alaskan landscape and you encounter a bear, like I'm curious, like you're just some guy from Georgia. What was the experience of like seeing one of those things and knowing that like it it, it has the ability to decide your fate in some circumstance? Like you're at the mercy of what, that thing wants to do you're not out running it you're not out climbing it you're not out swimming it you can't fight it i mean you can shoot it in the head but like what is like i mean how'd you overcome that because i imagine all i know is if is if i'm the client and i'm with the guide and i look over and my guide is you know pissing his pants and getting scared and nervous of a bear i'm not gonna (laughs) feel super confident no no well you shouldn't um the the key to that salmon like just flat out, uh, I'll tell you right now, everything I've learned about a bear, reading a bear's body language and hundreds and hundreds of encounters with bears. 
if I was in Montana or Wyoming and I saw a grizzly bear, if he was a mile away, I, he has my full complete attention, the entire encounter from the moment I know he exists. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pay attention to everything that bear's doing to include if he's circling around upwind and anything like that, because he doesn't have millions of salmon swimming in a river and in genetic lineage going back thousands of years of like, I patrol the river and eat the salmon for you know three months out of the year. Uh, and so th- these bears are super habituated to, to that life cycle. And at the same time, they're seeing plenty of fishermen. You know, every the, most of the places we go to fish, other lodges are fishing it as well. We were there the day before with a different set of clients. We probably saw that bear. That bear probably saw us. So it's, I think a lot of people set up this encounter in their head when they ask. And it's just not that. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's, uh, it's, I'm not the first human this bear's seen. I don't look like a salmon. I'm not swimming in the river. Uh, there's definitely some training with new guides and trying to help them understand what they see when a bear is approaching them is you know what the body language of that bear is going to tell you. Uh, but by and large, you kind of move out of the bear's way or the bear moves out of your way and just make sure you don't get stuck between a bear or mom and cubs or anything oh, yeah, like yeah. that. And everything's good. Yeah. Cause I, I guess the only thing I can relate it to like in Florida, I, I mean, people are always going to ask that kind of like naive, not so much naive question, but like the, you know, the first stop that the mind gets to is like, uh, when somebody asks about, you go to Alaska, well, what about bears? And in Florida, it's, well, what about the alligators? You know, and in Oklahoma, what about the tornadoes or what about, Wherever you go in the country, rattlesnakes in, you know, out West. Um, But I'm curious, like, like the alligator thing we get, I get, you know, I get that a lot. And, you know, it's, it's no big thing. It's like when, I think when you're around them enough, you kind of understand the reality of like, okay, well, if you just, if you just operate, you know, wisely, they're not going to mess with you. But one issue that we do have sometimes, especially, you know, I live right in like the heart of the Everglades. I mean, you cannot go to the, there are more alligators sometimes than birds. I mean, they're everywhere. <laughs> it's so common. It becomes so commonplace. That you can almost get too relaxed. But a problem that we'll sometimes have is some of the alligators in some areas, especially where there's a lot of fishing, they have recognized and they learned that, okay, the, I'm not going to eat the fisherman, but he's going to bring me my meal. Do the bear, I mean, is it, is it, I mean, is that a risk that you run with the bears? Have Absolutely. And now what do you do? I mean, you just, what do you do if a bear uh, moves in and says, I'm taking that fish from you? Well, one, you, all right, well, we'll assume that you were dumb and didn't take the steps prior to help mitigate that issue. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah you, you're, what are you going to jump on your fish to like, no, the bear now owns that fish. Right. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we would do is uh, tie our, our leaders with, 12 pound test. Uh, you're going to bring home any salmon except for a king salmon on 12 pound test. You might have to fight it a little bit harder but, or a little bit longer. But no big deal. But 12 pounds light enough that if a bear's watching and starting to, again, watch that body language, that bear's body language is showing that he's headed your way and taking too much interest in what's happening. You just point the rod and you tell the clients how to do it. You point the rod at it, hold the reel and 
just jerk back as hard as you can and break that fish off. Let it swim. We're standing on the edge of a creek with probably about a thousand fish sitting right in front of you. Don't worry, dude. You're going to get one on the next cast. We just got to let the bear go away. Yeah, they, I know that you like to use the term the tax man around here. Same thing with the sharks. When you're out in the open water, this gets to a point where letting the fish go is going to give them the best chance for survival, not trying to bring them to you quicker. But um, that's interesting. I guess I, I want to, you know, stick a little more to the fishing, but like just kind of tell me about so, like some of the, the species that y'all are targeting. I mean, is there like a, a, a special, like like the, the biggest, most, I don't know, cherished species is what? I mean, when people come there, what is like the main thing that they were wanting to typically go after? You know, that's actually a, a great question and one that doesn't have a single answer because I think it's different for different people. Yep. Um, the, the beautiful thing about Alaska is it has fair, especially from a guide point of view, it has very distinct seasons that happen through, you know, throughout the summer. Um, and it's all centered, everything in Alaska is all centered around salmon. Uh, so you've got king salmon that come in first and then your sockeye salmon, then your chum, silver salmon, uh, and pinks, depending on the year, come in with chums. So throughout the summer, it's different salmon going on. The reason that's important is uh, different rivers that are like rainbow trout rivers, you're waiting on the sockeye to come in and actively spawn and put eggs in the river to give you the insano rainbow trout fishing that Alaska is famous for. Yeah, yeah. If you're there to bring home meat in the form of salmon, you're coming for king salmon or you're coming to catch sockeye a little earlier. So it, it just depends on what each person is, is their kind of goal is. Uh, for me personally, as a guide and what I feel like the majority of, of what draws guides out of the lower 48, it's the rainbow trout. Um, they are the largest native rainbow trout in arguably the world. Um, they fight they're, the way an Alaskan rainbow fights is unlike any rainbow swimming in the lower 48. I don't care who you are and where you caught it. Mm -hmm. it, it a, a 20 inch rainbow will drag a 27 in the lower 48 to death if you tie them together. They are a whole different breed of rainbows. Um, and that is, you know, the 30 inch rainbow. That's the, the vaulted number, the one that uh, I think, you know, you probably hear one client, you've heard a thousand say, uh, oh, I'm here to catch my 30. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that that's really the, I think the pin, you know, the ultimate fish, but again, different people. I know people that don't care a bit about rainbow trout uh, and they want the salmon and that's all they want. Funny. You mentioned that kind of client that shows up there with like these, I don't know. They, they put those sort of demands upon themselves. They put those sort of demands upon you. I can't imagine that's a lot of fun to deal with. Uh, but uh, uh, I don't know. I'd almost rather have the brand new person that's never, never even thrown a rod because at least they're willing to like absorb what you're telling them. Because I'm sure you've encountered the people. It's like, you can't tell me nothing. You're just out here to, I don't know. Watch Be your me taxi do driver. Right. Yeah. That, yeah. That's what we called it. Is I'm I'm just supposed to shuttle you from spot A to spot B and shut my mouth. Uh, you know, um, but honestly, I, that's really not that common. You do get a handful of those, but here's the secret is uh he's usually got a friend or his wife with him. And 
almost always that other person is less experienced and or more receptive to coaching. So you just set that guy up, make sure he's good to go, get him in front of a spot where confident, you know, he'll hook something. And then you go work with that other person and like really work on getting their technique, work on getting them dialed. And then about two or three hours later, Mr. Blowhard comes over and says, what, uh, what, what'd you tie on? Oh, they're yeah. fishing the same fish, same rig you are. Well, why are they, why, why are they catching so much? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, those things that I was asking of you, they're doing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> Um, and, and that's, that's honestly the best way to, to win over a difficult client is show them success without explaining to them, yeah. that, you know? So yeah, it's, uh, and, and that worked plenty of times. That's awesome. That's, that's funny how you describe that. Cause I've seen similar things play out and I'm not a guy, but it's, it's funny how a little bit of humility will take you a long way and just getting better and, and having success. And I, I'd be lying if I didn't say there's been times I've taken my own kids out and they didn't start catching more fish. Meal. <laughs> the hell happened in here? But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't, if you approach any situation, like from the mind frame of being a student, no matter how experienced you are, it's like, you know, you, you can't go wrong there, but I don't know. I think of like the Alaskan experience and it's like, <clears throat> to me, it sort of transcends beyond just like the fishing. Like it's like one of those things. And I feel like your like your Instagram page. I look to it a lot because you've done a good job of not being one of those guys that just posts the hero shots, like just the fish and only the fish. Like look what, look at me, look what I caught. There's some photography on your page that I was interested in. I'm curious, like, are you the guy behind the camera with some of these photos of the Northern lights the family of bears waiting across the river. Uh, I, I know there was one you had like an encounter with like a little, I don't know if it was like a snow fox or what it was. You were like feeding it something. But it's like, yeah, that's that's me on on all that. Um, that, that is we, all, we had that, a little camp fox. Yeah. Well, some of the photography like, I was impressed by. <laughs> and I've had some other guys on here where like that's like their second thing. And like, I'm by no means a photographer, but it's it is like a pastime I'm so interested in is being able to like, like I was saying, is I'm like, I'm, I'm like a guy that's fascinated by the outdoors and wildlife, even before being a fisherman. So to be able to like, I don't know, interact with those things with the, the intimacy of a lens that's zoomed in, you can observe things through like, through that. Uh, I don't know, some of the photography is just awesome. And is, are you just like, I mean, what kind of camera are you running? You just out there doing it for fun or? Uh, or no, thank you. Um, it was, uh, Unfortunately, I don't have that camera anymore, but it was uh, just a little Sony A6000. So just one of the smaller body digital cameras that um, if you're into the photography world, the terms full frame or crop sensor, it's a crop sensor. So it's not these big professional cameras, but you can interchange the lenses on them. It can do a number of different things that allow you to uh, try to get the best photos. So you know, consistently I would bring, I had a little Pelican case with a couple lenses in it. And, um, you know, if I was taking a fish photo, I might use one lens. If I was going to take a landscape or a wildlife, I might use something different. Uh, but you know, honestly, I, I was always one of those guys, I guess, similar to how you're describing where the camera was always a very secondary thought. And, uh, I had that realization before my second season in Alaska, where I was like, I am going to be most bonkers beautiful places yeah yeah doing the most incredible things i i see a national geographic every day 
And uh, it'll be a disservice to to not take photos and videos and record it. And um, yeah, the like the stuff with the sleeping bear family or the you know, all that, that's that's just live action. You're just floating down the river and that day I just happened to take a photo of it, but I probably passed that same mom and cubs hanging out on that gravel bar every day for two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, that's so, cool. I was, um, I was curious about that. I was like, man, this is some great photography. I'm, I'm sort of the same way. I know I've had a lot of trips in the past that I, all I have from the trips are fish photos. And I was like, we got a cameo from the dog here. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come on. Hey. He's, he's, st- he's stepping. Or oh she okay she's stepping up the efforts to let you know she she has right. needs. <laughs> That's fine. Give me one sec. All right, I'm so sorry. Yeah, she's she's begging to go out. I guess evening uh, use the restroom. And, uh, yeah, you, well, you don't want to ignore those calls because they they gave yeah. you every chance. So I got the same thing with with my dogs. They let me know. Don't want to go off to uh, off off topic too much here. I had a, a, my dogs. They communicate with me. They let me know. They When they're hungry, they slap their bowl and they stare at me. When they're yep. thirsty, they slap their bowl and they look at me. So <clears throat> actually this morning, it's kind of funny, funny we're bringing this up. So this morning, you know, it's it's a it's a nice brisk 40 degrees here in Florida, which for me is like freezing cold and dying. <laughs> I get up at like four in the morning to get ready for work. First thing I need to do is take the dogs out like they got to go. And they're big dogs. So like they make a very big mess. Like you don't want to go there. You don't want to deal with that. But uh, they let me know that they were thirsty. So I went out the side door of the garage, went over to the spigot, filled it up with water. When I came back, my larger dog was jumping up at the door in excitement. Well, he hit the latch on the side uh, garage door and locked me out. And I'm very much like lock the doors at night, lock everything up, safety right. first. And I'm sitting out here and I'm, and I'm, in, a, I'm in shorts and a T-shirt. I'm like, oh no! Sitting pulling on the door. I'm like, am I gonna have to like knock on the doors and scare my family to like wake them up? What am I gonna do? I was like trying to like coax him to jump up and unlock the door. I'm like, it, it didn't work. Do it again. Do it again. Yeah, I gave a good <laughs> prayer to the Lord above. Please let my Jeep be unlocked so that I can open the garage door with the you know the garage door opener. I lucked out, but a lesson nice. learned. That that could have ended up bad. But anyway, all right, so talking and speaking about, like, filming the experience, though, I do know that you wound up getting to be on, like, like the fly fishing film tour, and I thought that's pretty cool because I've been, you know, I'm not really a fly angler. I mean, I can I can fly fish a little bit, but I've always been an admirer of people who are good at making a good quality film, and I know it's like, it seems like the fly fishing guys, just they have it down more than, like, the gear guys of capturing a moment and capturing an experience and like highlighting like the experience as a whole from like the travel to the travel from the low points, the high points somehow you want to, and I, and I I've heard of the fly fishing film tour. I've watched a lot of the films that are involved in that, but I saw, you know, in like the, in, in, in your Instagram that you had been involved in that. So it's kind of curious on how that came to be. Like, what was your role in that? Some of the experiences that that's led you on. I mean, that's, that's pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, Basically, uh, and and for a lot of this little segment, I'm going to have to give all, all the credit in the world to one of my close friends, uh, Paul Nicoletti. He, uh, uh, and for those of you out there clicking on Instagram on uh, 
on anything to do with Sims. He's the guy behind the scenes, uh, you know, helping run their social media, or I say helping. And he's just does an outstanding job. Uh, you really talk about a guy that pours his heart into something. Uh, and that's where uh, he had a relationship with the film tour. Every fishing guide uh, in Alaska has the, the same problem every year. That's what do I do during the winter? Um, you know, we make a boatload of money during the summer, but uh, for a lot of us, that starts to run low. And uh, mm. so you got to figure out something to do in the film tour. Uh, for those of you don't know that don't know or have never heard of it, it is a uh, independent fly fishing film uh, tour that travels around and puts on it's about two hours worth of films each film's 10 to 15 minutes long they're independently submitted uh then as a crew we would watch them figure out which ones we wanted to use and piece them all together um and then go around the country and put them on uh and it was awesome you know we ended up driving basically uh figure eight around the country uh, shows from the West Coast to Boston, Midwest, and the Southeast. Uh, and it was uh, fantastic. I uh, got to, you know, we uh, would use the fly shops as our uh, intermediary for selling tickets. And so we pull into town, go into the fly shop, end up having like a day to go fishing with one of the yeah. guys from the shop, go get some beers afterwards, put on a show, move on to the next town. Uh, so it was, it was a ton of fun to be a part of. Um, and, you know, as far as the films and, and that aspect, like you were mentioning within the fly fishing world, uh, without sounding too cliche, I think there is a certain amount of artistry that goes into fly fishing as just its existence. I don't, I don't know how best describe it. Um, you know, so many times when you think of a trout stream, you think of this idyllic setting with giant mountains and, you know, the, that idea. Um, and so it's, you know, said trout don't live in ugly places. And uh, I think, you know, with the explosion of fly fishing out of the trout zone, that's a more recent thing. You know, the, mm. the roots of fly fishing are, are in the mountains, in the trout. Um, and there's, you know, a, a history of writers writing about fly fishing. Um, and it, it, I think it's just always had a little bit more of an artistic side to it. I, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know a better way to describe that. No, I'd agree with that. And I, I, I've got a lot of good friends that do a lot of fly, fly fishing, whether it's saltwater, freshwater, whether it's guys that are doing it kind of lowland, so even the guys that are like the swamps. Yeah. The guys that are up in mountains. I know that there's like a, an artistry, even in a special, like, uh, I don't know when it comes to like tie, especially the guys that tie their own flies. It's like, I don't know. I, I can see that because I, I can appreciate like art in different forms, but it's almost like an art. And I imagine it, it has that same sort of, I don't know, therapeutic uh, element to it. And, and then and then there's probably just the I don't know. It probably just feels better to when you catch a fish on one that you tied yeah. yourself, take a little bit more pride in it. But uh, I mean, so we're all I mean, that nomadic lifestyle sounds really cool, though, but that you're just traveling around. I don't know. And like, what are you in? Like a bus, like a van, like, well, like an RV, uh, your individual car? Honestly, just... di no, different things, different years because of <laughs> uh, so we would have sponsorships through uh, like Costa, Sims and Yeti. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, one year we had a truck that had yet that Yeti provided for us that had Yeti wrap on it. We'd have like a forerunner with a coaster wrap and we're pulling a drift boat behind us. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> then, you know, have like a, um, 
it, we had a trailer that had all of our show stuff in it and that would get pulled by in like an f-250 and usually it was two rigs an f-250 with a trailer and then a uh uh at forerunner with a drift boat and that's yeah stayed in hotels and that kind of stuff now that's awesome now i, I and i remember now that like you know we talked about the alaska uh thing but I, i've seen photos on your pages too like you've been able to at least go to some different more exotic type places as well i saw the photo of you holding that gigantic barracuda and <laughs> it escapes me where you were like where where you were fishing but uh I mean, that what, was what, in the Bahamas. Oh, okay. Now, um, so actually, this all right, this is a cool little sidebar, and this kind of ties yeah. um, a, really a little bit of everything we've talked about together. Uh, so, the group of guys that I guided with, we also all did the film tour together. It was like mm -hmm. three or four of us, and we were approached about doing a film where we were going to um, go from closing the lodge down in Alaska and driving this beater minivan from Alaska to New York and fishing some destinations along the way. And uh, without being too negative, it wasn't really the film any of us were expecting or wanting to have. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't, we didn't shoot it. We didn't edit it. We didn't, you know, we were just the, the, the models, right. The actors in it. Um, and so my buddy Paul had, put together this other little bit of film that was just, you know, other stuff and showed it to some guys and people were got real stoked. I'm like, man, you really good at this. Like come up with an idea and pitch it. And uh, we get a phone call from a guy that's trying to build a lodge on this Island called Ragged Island uh, in the middle of nowhere, Bahamas. I mean, it's closer to Cuba than any other inhabited Bahamian Island. Yeah. And nobody's like, nobody's fly fished it in like 20 years. And uh, he gets off, Paul gets off the phone with, uh, with Will and he's like, man, I think I found a spot. We, you know, we'll go down there and it's a full exploratory. Like nobody's done anything here in like 20 yeah. years other than locals. Like, all right, cool. Let's go check it out. So we end up going down there and didn't really know what we would find. And by the end of it, we were catch, we, uh, maybe we were the first people to film topwater eats of a bonefish eating poppers which bonefish for those you don't know traditionally are bottom feeders in shallow water yeah yeah and we found them in a situation where we were catching so many someone said we'll just throw on a popper and see if it works and, and <laughs> so we ended up getting film of that um i got that monster cuda um we got a lot of that footage for that actually on drone footage it's freaking incredible uh, and then, uh, at the end of the film, my buddy, uh, Rex got a permit, you know, we got, which permit on the flats on a fly is like one of the more difficult challenging, yeah, yeah. uh, you know, things to make happen. So we were able to put together this whole trip in a week of fishing and we had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. And the name came to us. It was expectations because as fishing guides, we'd always dealt with somebody else's expectations. Right. Yeah. I'm coming to Alaska. I'm going to catch a 30 inch rainbow and you're going to the guy that's got to make that happen. And so we realized we had gone down to this Island with like hopes of like maybe what we'll encounter, but literally no expectations. Mm. Like all of us had fished enough and in enough different places that it was like, Hey, if we just go with a good group of anglers with the idea of we're going to have a good time, 
and work hard and fish hard and, and, and figure and work together to figure it out. Like by the end of this, it's going to be awesome. And that's exactly what it was. And, and I can't, you know, say it enough. Like if you're going on a, on a vacation or a trip to go fishing or hunting, you got to leave the expectations at home. Let the trip just come to you. Like it, it, let it be what it is. You, you know, you, you can't go shoot that 200 class deer just because you paid the money. You can't catch the 30 inch rainbow just because you paid the money. But if you're so obsessed with the 30 inch rainbow, you might look past the 500 other things that were amazing. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome advice. And I share the exact same sentiment. That's kind of been a common theme and a tone of this podcast, even it's early infancy with some of the guys I've brought on, but it's, I think it's really hard sometimes for fishermen to let fish be almost like secondary to like the experience as a whole, or like, the fish are like, I don't know, they come like subsequent to the enjoyment of everything else. Not, you know, to get too crazy as far as thinking there's like these spirits that be, but like, I think if you approach these kind of things with like a level of humility to where you're out there just enjoying time with good friends and the guys and you're taking the time, to like keep your head on the swivel and absorb that which is around you. I swear that like the fish just, they will come. Like it's like, it's like, a, and it feels more like, you know, catching the fish just feels more like a reward when you approach it like that. Cause I never want my fishing to be like a task where it's like, all right, I want to travel to this location because I want to catch this fish. And it becomes like, an, like it's very much like objective based fishing to where it's like, if I need, I'm going there to do this. And I, if I leave here without that, everything was a failure and never mind you going and being under the Northern lights as you've done or encountering incredible wildlife or seeing something amazing. But you know, I, I, I know I try to always like not be so laser focused on catching the fish because I'm convinced that there's things happening around me that, that I, I can't afford like with my mentality to miss. So, um, it that's, that's awesome. Especially for it with a group of it being like guys who are guides, you're like, you're out there able to just be fishing. So that's right. cool. And I, I know that the, like the landscape of area you're in looked really, really cool, but, uh, yeah, sometimes the fish is just like, I don't know. It's like, it's like the cherry on top to, to, to the bigger picture, but more people need to need to approach it that way. And I don't know. I feel like sometimes social media has made that harder to do where it's like, you know, it's about the fish. It's about getting that big, you know, hero shot. Um, so especially when I like gloss over people's pages, I don't know. It's, it's cool to see big fish, but like when I see that guys have like tied in photography of, I don't know, a bird or, <laughs> or a broken down car or like, they're like, they're actually putting out there the parts that sucked, you know, right. it's, it's like, okay, there's, there's a guy that's humble. There's a guy that like appreciates the part of the story where, things didn't go to plan because to me, that's always the best stories. I can't remember trips where everything went well. So, like, well, I, I do have some awesome photos, but I mean, I couldn't tell you anything other than the fish, but like the best stories are though, always the ones where I don't know the fish comes as like a surprise. You know what I mean? Oh, it's, that's you're familiar with the difference between type one and type two fun. Yeah. 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 Are, are you, tell, tell me about it. Okay. Yeah. The, uh, Type one fun, I've always had type one fun's roller coasters. It's uh pure, unadulterated fun. Like, sign me up, cool. I sit down in the seat, yay, 
raise our hands. We're going to go have a blast. We get done. We had fun. Uh, everything you expected it to be. But type two fun is uh, let's let's go elk hunting. Like, great. It's going to be awesome. We're going to go shoot this elk. And in the process, you don't think about the, the other stuff. But then you ended up having to hike up to a ridgeline every day that's several thousand vertical feet above you and you're getting snowed on and the wind's blowing and everything. And you, you think there's no chance that there's going to be any success every day kind of has its own little bit of suck to it. And then the weather clears and you shoot your elk and it's like, wait a minute or not. Maybe you don't shoot the elk, but you look back on that trip and you go, wait a minute. I earned that having fun. Like when you've had to work for it or sacrifice or sweat a little bit, it's, it makes all the difference. Uh, I think you said earlier you were a wrestler. It's the same kind of thing. There's no yeah, yeah. better feeling than getting your hand raised because you work to make that happen. Nobody gave that to you. And and the the best type of fun, especially outdoors, is truly when you work for it. Like, don't get me wrong. Everybody loves a day where you go catch a hundred fish and right, it's all yeah, great, yeah. but it's the day that you catch one, and you had to do something really weird to catch it. Like that's the fish you're gonna remember. Yeah. Well, if it, it the, the days that you go out and catch a hundred are only good because you remember the days that the hundreds of days you went out and caught none. Right. You know, if you go out and right. catch a hundred a day all the time, I don't know. You set a bar that an unhealthy bar or an unhealthy expectation, and I feel like those are the guys that kind of flounder when the tire goes flat or a storm rolls in or. I don't know. You, you forget some critical item that you needed. And it's like you throw one little monkey wrench into the to the path of folks who've, I don't know, never seen difficulty and uh, they just, you know, they can't, they can't, they can't make it. But I don't know. I think we share a lot of the same sentiments. So, so that's cool. But uh, your story is awesome, though. I mean, I, I, I love the fact and I think it's like critical to the development of a lot of like men. They're like, we need that sort of like venture out of the comfort zone. And, and whether it circles us back to exactly where we started, like, I don't know, some element of, of leaving and doing something on your own and doing something hard. Uh, if you don't have that, I don't know. I, I know that I fear a scenario and I think I'm beyond the realm of that being possible, but I couldn't think of a, a, of a more horrifying thing that than being in a physical condition where you like that time is gone or that physical, that physical ability is no longer there. Like the option to go and do something spectacular or adventurous or unique or interesting is gone. And you and your time is like, you're, you're at the end. And so I'm like, you know, that, that to me is, is the stuff of nightmares to be in, in a position where you're reflecting on, I don't know, your experience. And I, I'm not trying to go like in a morbid tone with this, but you know, there's gotta be an awareness of your mortality at some point that that's going to push you towards doing something unique and interesting because that could happen tomorrow or it could happen as an elderly person, but, um, that, that thirst for adventure. And so the fact that you left, I don't know what could have been something secure, or, you know, didn't necessarily sound fulfilling, but it was safe. And you, you know, took a major risk to go across the continent and then do all these really awesome things, very envious things. Um, and, but now, you know, it's my understanding you're, you're wearing the Georgia hat. You know, you're in the house. You got you got the dog. You got the wife. You got some kids, um, which is all as fulfilling, more fulfilling than that. But at least you, you've 
I don't know, you've had those experiences and now not that they're over with, but it's, uh, it's awesome that you kind of like gotten that you were able to do that. But I am curious though, like now, you know, like, are there still things that you have on the horizon that you want to do, like bucket list trips or is there things coming up maybe this year or next year or like, hey, but like when I hit 40, I want to do this. Or when I by the time I hit 50, I want to do that. Nothing's really, you know, set in stone, um, which I think for most people that would know me, it was, doesn't come in a surprise. I, you know, pretty nomadic for the last 10 years and mm-hmm. uh met a lovely lady that uh for lack of any other terms nailed me down and uh, made me realize that there was a little more to life than what the next river looked like or what yeah, the next yeah. fish was going to be um i really want to start guiding again but the reality of where i live in north georgia um it's not the trout fishing's the main draw obviously like we discussed earlier with fly fishing and that's mm-hmm. uh I'm, I'm at the point where that's not the guiding that I necessarily want to focus on. And there is an incredibly healthy striper population in a 40,000 acre lake, just 10 minutes from me. And there are opportunities to catch them on a fly rod. It is exceedingly difficult. It makes me want to bang my head on a wall more times than I can count. Um, But I'm in the process of learning that fishery and trying to figure out more about something that's very different. It's pushing a lot of my boundaries as an angler. not only in it's it's not a river anymore it's a lake now Mm. there's very different you know way you think about everything even the terminology is different i'm learning how to do a lot more stuff that like your tournament bass angler tactics are kind of doing to try to figure more about how to approach a reservoir uh and, and i absolutely love it um and i'm hoping to be able to get back into the guiding through that uh, but the reality is, is I don't feel comfortable taking anybody's money right now. I, I don't, yeah, yeah. I think we could go have a fun day, but I don't think I'd be able to provide somebody a quality day with regards to what I know about my fishery. Um, and I said earlier, you know, you, you fake it till you make it. And, um, uh, that's a joke, but I think that there's some extent that you can do that within the guiding world. Um, without trying to sound pompous, I think most fly fishing guides or trout guides, once they've had a couple of years experience, could go to almost any other trout river in the country with a couple of days of fishing and, and start to really get the feel of that body of water and be able to start guiding it. Uh, that's not possible on what I've been trying to do. So it's very different. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's cool. Are, are there plans to go back to to Alaska, or is that kind of like a distant thing at this point in time? Um, no, no real plans on going back. Uh, you know, the reality of guiding up there is uh, it's a four and a half month season. Uh, mm-hmm. You're gone from late May to mid October. Um, I there are opportunities to be able to guide like half a season during the busier time of year, but then that takes me away from my family. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, for that extended period. And then also makes it harder to do other, you know, work functions when you're like, Hey, I got to go on sabbatical every year. (laughs) Right. Yeah. No, now you're, now you're in that balancing act where, you know, you have to balance your passion for guiding with your passion for doing fishing for yourself with, you know, cultivating the young ones and making sure that they're being properly reared and being a good husband and being a good everything else. And, 
it's like, you know, that's in the position that I'm in. It's like, you dude, know, it's tough. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's tough. There's no, it, it can't be done correctly. I feel like, but it's like, um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because I feel like, like, like the young ones need to look at you and see that you have something that you're passionate about. Absolutely. But you, but you can't chase that passion so aggressively that you're like, negating that time with them so it's like it's kind of a weird thing it's an interesting thing but um you know it's 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 really it's really hard to kind of to balance that because i know you know i don't know i i love my childhood and my parents and my brothers and i had a great upbringing but i also feel like i don't know i approach life like at the citadel especially through the lens of all right it's time to quit screwing around i gotta get a job i gotta get a career i gotta like get into this and and that be, can become a real interesting trap when you're like just part of the machine, you know what I mean? And and I know for me as as a dad of a six, you know, of oh my god, don't let me forget my kids' ages. Uh, coming up on six, <laughs> a nine year old and a six year old, um, I can't, I don't want them to look at me stressed out, living like running the rat race. Having right. something I'm not passionate about, not doing something on the on on the side, or or heaven forbid that I put into their minds that like okay, well it's cool you can you can play now, but like when you get older, all that play crap's done, and like if if you don't you know get an education and go get a job, you know I I I I will never allow myself to I don't know be that voice in their lives. So it's like some of that is spoken through just like encouragement. Some of that is like acted out through making sure that they see you have things you're passionate about. But again, it's that, it's that balance act. Can't be out there fishing every single weekend. Can't be missing the wrestling tournaments. Can't be missing the gymnastics competitions. Can't be, you know, you just, whoa, you cannot be that guy. So I think we're both kind of in that position now um, after our conversation we had kind of off the bar when we talked a little bit more, more about wrestling and things like that but uh well yeah. i think i think a big part of it is is just like you said it's sharing that passion um you know i i've got two step boys they're uh 10 and 8 and so they're right at that age where like everything's cool i'm into everything let's go let's go let's go and i've been able to carve out uh you know a overnight canoe float camping trip i've been able to take them on some other fishing trips that are like, Hey, we're going to go on this fishing trip and do this. And even if they become adults and don't ever pursue that, I think it's important mm -hmm. that a, you're giving them the base of enjoying the outdoors, regardless of what it is. It's just being outside, being right. away from the screens, all that fun stuff. Mm -hmm. But then also they, they see it out of us, out of the adults. I remember being a kid and seeing the adults, around the campfire hit that zone that they never get at home, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that like, those are just the natural progressions that happen when you expose them to that world. And uh, it's, you know, I'm, I'm so excited about them getting older because that opens up the door to more and more. We can try the more difficult things. We can do the, a little bit more, you know, the older kind of things, the whitewater rafting. Oh, and hey, we're going to dump out of this class three rapid. I need you to cast left like right away. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, it, it's a ton of fun. And, and they see that passion with me. And, and I think uh, it's definitely transferring into them 
Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, if they're already on wrestling mats at that age, then, then there, there's no avoiding, I don't know, the mental toughness that's going to be developed there. So that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. Shout out to Sam and Max. They are, uh, awesome little dudes and, uh, I'm sure at some point you guys will hear this and, uh, you know, that's why, uh, I want to definitely thank you for, for inviting me onto this. Cause, um, although I have a couple little things out there in this world that are media that, uh, when I'm an old man, I can look back on, it'll be cool to, to sit down and, and hear somebody, uh, curious about my story and have an opportunity to tell it. And I want to thank you very much for that. Yeah, for sure. I'm glad. I, I'm glad I got to get you on here and get to know you more as like Sanford, the fisherman, husband, father, human, and not so much that guy that used to come into my room and steal my snacks <laughs> and maybe knock a few things over on the way out the door. Uh, so I yeah, keep dude. you on your toes. Right. Yeah. It can't, it can't be, it can't be an entirely positive thing. You got to like, you know, not make a little bit of a mess on the way out the door. Type so, two uh, fun. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, dude, I really appreciate your time. That was an that was a that was a really awesome conversation. That was that was a good one. That was what I had had hoped for. And uh, so getting to know you on that level is cool. It only took, like I said, almost two decades to to get to have that real conversation. But uh, but yeah, man, it, it's funny we're we're sort of bound by the common interest in fishing and by the whole citadel thing. So yeah, dude. Yeah. <laughs> but but um little sidebar i got a buddy that's uh lives down in because you're in the tampa area right i'm south of tampa i'm in naples now so even better but, it, but i fish in tampa all the time yeah i got a good buddy of mine it's a guide uh that i worked with in alaska for years and years and years and he is same like you he likes climbing around the swamps going after the weird stuff yeah yeah uh, <laughs> and uh i he and i are i've been dying to get down there to go fish with him and, and we'll have to get together and grab a beer and uh climb around in a swamp i want to i want to see it through your yeah. eyes a little. oh bit. yeah for sure if you're ever down here you just got to let me know i'll i'll I will. i'll make it a point to to get out there with you i will absolutely and yeah man i i thoroughly enjoyed this and yeah any anything i can do to help with any of it just let me know yeah for sure no you've been you've been more than a good help all i needed was a good honest normal pure conversation it's a lot of weird stuff out there in the fishing media space but uh need more good honest relatable down-to-earth uh voices so and i think you've definitely provided that so really appreciate your time dude absolutely thanks all right man thank you for listening to the boundless pursuit podcast if you enjoyed this show your feedback comments and reviews are very important to me also this podcast is just one element to a much bigger content outlet I urge you to head over to www.haverodswilltravel.com where you'll find audio, visual, and written editorial content. That is three dimensions of awesome fishing content brought to you by a very dynamic team of anglers. I hope that you'll tune in next week as we continue to build this program and have interesting and skilled anglers each Thursday. Thank you for listening.